this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel along with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Elizabeth Brake about her new book, Minimizing Marriage, which was just published with Oxford University Press. Elizabeth Brake is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Arizona State University. Being married is commonly seen as a sign of maturity and adulthood. Moreover, being married is often taken to be a necessary component of a healthy and fulfilling adult life. Accordingly, those adults who are not married are typically treated with suspicion or even pitied. That is, marriage is largely seen in our society as morally transformative. Marriage also has a vast political significance in that important rights and privileges accrue to persons in virtue of their being married. In the United States, it's not uncommon for marriage to be legally defined in terms that specify a very particular moral conception of the nature and purpose of marital relations. In Minimizing Marriage, Brake critiques these traditional moral and legal understandings of marriage and argues for a conception of marriage as minimal. That is, Brake rejects the idea that marriage is a uniquely transformative moral relation. She criticizes the view that marriage must be centrally focused on a particular popular view about what loving and loving relations are like and challenges the compatibility of existing legal and political arrangements concerning marriage with liberal justice. On her view, marriage should be reconceived to be a legal relation among persons, two or more, for purposes of mutual care. This is a challenging and provocative book. Let's now turn to the interview. Hello, Elizabeth Brake. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Oh, I'm well, thanks. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Um, thank you for inviting me. Well, excellent. Today, I'm talking with uh, Elizabeth Brake about her new book, Minimizing Marriage, which was published this year with Oxford University Press as part of their series in Studies in Feminist Philosophy. The book is divided into two parts. The first is focused on criticizing the ways in which marriage is taken to be a morally transformative event or relation, or more specifically, uh, it's focused on um, the ways in which marriage is taken to be uniquely morally transformative. The book's second part is focused on a critique of existing legal understandings of marriage. In both parts, uh, Brake argues for a kind of deflation of marriage or minimizing of marriage. She holds that it's not uniquely transformative as a relation, 
and that its legal dimension should be broadened. Or in other words, she holds that the legal constraints on what could count as marriage should be minimized. That is, there should be fewer constraints. The result is, in my view, a a compelling position about uh, what just marriage or what a just marriage institution uh, would look like. And there's obviously uh, lots to say, uh, but before we get into the details of Elizabeth's view, um, Elizabeth, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks, Bob. Well, I grew up in a small town in uh, southern Virginia until the age of 10, and that made an impact on me that led to my interest in feminist issues. One of the things that I talk about in the preface of the book was growing up in an atmosphere where women had equal rights, and there was certainly a rhetoric that women could achieve everything. But at the same time, looking around and seeing um, there was a pressure for little girls to think about marriage, to think about um, their future as leading to marriage as opposed to upon a career. And at the same time, seeing that there was a kind of social inequality in a lot of the marriages around me, where, for example, um, you know, the adult uh, men that I knew as a small child might be lawyers or doctors or educators, and their wives might have given up their um, job. They might have had a profession before marriage, but given it up or um, downgraded it on marriage. So there was a kind of social inequality that created a dissonance with this emphasis on equal rights that I was being educated into. And that left a big impression, and that's kind of at the heart of a lot of the feminist issues that um, really sparked my interest in marriage and um, related things. So in terms of my academic background, I actually did my first degree at Oxford in literature, And aside from ancient philosophy, so, you know, Seneca, I didn't really get interested in um, philosophy until I was in Japan after my undergraduate degree. And in the small town in Japan where I was living, there were about 10 books in English in the local library. So I read all of them. And one of them happened to be Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. And this book just infuriated me. You know, I couldn't believe the things he was saying. He was fulminating against young people dating in groups and men and women working together um, because, you know, they would forget that they had more important projects, you know, that they should be carrying out in the privacy of the home and so forth. And I saw in his bio, he he was uh, noted as a philosopher, professor of philosophy. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to write on these topics, too, so I can respond to this. And so I ended up going to St. Andrews in Scotland um, for my master's and stayed on there for a Ph.D. And, you know, when I got there, it was something of a harsh awakening because I told this story to one of my um, professors there shortly after I arrived. And he sort of looked at knows at me and said, well, but Alan Bloom isn't really a philosopher, you know. So it, I realized that there was a lot more to philosophy um, and, you know, to ethics, meta-ethics than I had really anticipated going in. Um, but well, you thank, know, good, thank goodness. Thank goodness, yeah. More than <laughs> There's Alan more to philosophy than Alan Bloom, right. Yeah, but then ultimately, you know, after the, the training in, in those other areas, I was finally able to come back to um, these issues and actually write on, you know, the kinds of issues and social ethics and political philosophy that sparked my interest in the first place. Um, so in terms of uh, uh, my job, I'm currently at Arizona State University, where I just moved after 
12 years, 11 years, I think, in Calgary, Canada, at the University of Calgary. Right. Excellent. How do you like Arizona? Oh, I love it. I love the heat. <laughs> well, that's that's good. That's a happy coincidence because there's plenty of it uh, for you. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've often wondered how many uh, of us, uh, I count myself among them, uh, got into philosophy um, partly because we were infuriated by Alan Bloom. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I remember that, uh, the book and then um, also the the introduction to Plato's Republic, which I had to read as an undergraduate, found very objectionable in all kinds of respects. Um, so uh, and now as I met, let's get into to talking about the book. Um, so as I mentioned just a minute ago or so, um, your book, Minimizing Marriage, is divided into these two parts. One is focused on the moral issues. The other is on the political and legal uh, issues. But I want to just, you know, follow the, the progress uh, of the book as you wrote it. And just let's just start with, with the moral uh, 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 content of the book. Um, so, uh, again, I'll ask you more specifically about the promises stuff or to say a little bit about the, 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 the analysis you give of promising uh, in a bit. But can you give us a general orientation um, to the sort of uh, the, the, the various kinds of moral questions that marriage as an institution and a set of practices and as a legal status and all the rest raises? Because one of the, the things I found really attractive about, um, about the book was that um, – you know, I think that this is a mark of uh, of, of good philosophy uh, across the board. Is that um, you were taking something that we all uh, are inclined to take for granted as just the way society or the way things are, and trying to show all of the philosophical problems and all the philosophical issues that um, that uh, um, a normal, seemingly normal institution raises uh, for us. So, can you give us just a sort of broad overview of where you think the the, the the, the ethical fault lines are in marriage as an institution and as a practice? Yeah, well, thanks. That's, there's a lot to talk about because when you look at the history of the philosophy of marriage, there are so many different defenses of marriage uh, uh, that have been brought to bear in terms of flourishing and the natural law tradition and basic goods in, you know, in Kant's ethics, in terms of the rights exchanged in marriage. Um, so there are a lot of different threads in thinking about the ethics of marriage. But you know, my starting point was really this idea, as you mentioned, it's widely taken for granted that marriage has a special moral value, even among people who are pretty secular, you know, people who aren't really um, regular churchgoers. There's the idea that marriage, you know, morally transforms a relationship, that it's morally significant. Um, and we see this in the U.S. in court decisions, you know, talking about um, how marriage is foundational to public morality. You know, we see it if we think about, you know, the difficulty that an unmarried um, man would have in running for president, right? It's, uh, um, you know, generally voters will say that they trust a married person more. They take that as a sign of character, right? So marriage is really deeply associated in, you know, the national consciousness with high moral character and with a certain kind of moral value to a relationship. And so, you know, the book begins by asking, well, what could this transformation be? I mean, in a secular, philosophical, moral account, um, as opposed to a religious account in which, for example, marriage is a sacrament, so, you know, that provides a different kind of account of how it transforms the relationship. What is it about getting married, exchanging these vows, taking on these uh, legal rights and responsibilities, inhabiting these social roles, 
what would morally transform a relationship in um, in the way that we tend to think, you know, we broadly tend to think of marriage as morally transforming a relationship, making it better. Um, and so, you know, I I just kind of reviewed some of the the main answers or lines of answering to that question. Character, does it have something to do with an individual's virtues that being involved in um, marriage uh, makes someone better able to flourish, as some people have argued, or is it that um, being committed in marriage leads people to taking on more duties and makes them a more virtuous person in that way? So is there a connection between marriage and virtue? Another, you know, line of analysis focuses on rights, and you know, Kant's very historically very important. Um, moral account of marriage focused on the rights that were exchanged in marriage. He thought these were sui generis rights, utterly unique rights, um, and that they instituted um, a kind of equal possession of one another. Um, so is there something about the rights or the obligations that are exchanged in marriage uh, that couldn't be exchanged in any other kind of relationship that make marriage such a uniquely valuable transformative relationship? And then, of course, marriage is also a legal and institutional, sorry, a legal and social institution. So in thinking about how marriage might change your relationship, you also have to ask, well, what does it, you know, how does it change? How does it morally transform the relationship that there's this exchange of legal responsibilities? Um, so, for example, a commitment to whatever your state's, you know, laws regarding the marital property might be. What does it mean that you're taking on um, these social roles, right? That, that you are agreeing to inhabit um, these social roles of husband and wife. Um, so those are sort of the broad, you know, at, at the highest level, the kind of broad um, threads of the moral analysis of marriage that I undertake. So um, let me just ask a, 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 a question of clarification: <laughs> is the is the concern with the the, to rebut the claim that marriage is morally transformative, or is it the, the 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 closely related claim that you want to rebut that marriage is uniquely morally transformative? Because it, it again, it seems to me that um, you know people often talk about um, their uh, uh, their 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 marriage, their relationship with uh, uh, their spouse, to have had some kind of deep some cases, some kind of drastic moral effect on them. Um, and um, certainly, I, I take it that you're not denying that that could happen. You're, you're concerned with the, the sort of the, the, the social um, presumption that marriage is morally unique in that it transforms lives in some special way that other kinds of interpersonal relations can't. Is, is that correct? Right, exactly. So I want to take issue with the claim that marriage is uniquely morally transformative, that, um, you know, it creates a value in a relationship or creates virtues that cannot uh, be created in, um, say, friendships, deeply committed lifelong friendships, or in unmarried, um, you know, sexual cohabitant relationships. So I I want to take issue with the the claim that marriage is somehow unique, but also with the claim that marriage is always or inherently morally transformative, right? Because another point I want to make in the book is, you know, someone can go through the marriage ceremony and say these words, um, but, you know, while that might create moral obligations, so so that's a kind of transformation, 
um, that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, transform their attitudes of respect um, towards the other party. It doesn't, uh, you know, necessarily transform them in terms of virtues or characters. So, you know, so you can have unmarried relationships, which, um, you know, in any of these um, uh, factors of, of the virtues of the, of the partners or, you know, the obligations taken on, um, you can have unmarried relationships that are, are more morally valuable or um, morally praiseworthy than married relationships. So, but it, it, in general, you know, I really like Judith Jarvis Thompson's line, there are cases and cases and the details make a difference. So, of course, there can be very good marriages um, in which there is a kind of moral transformation. So what I want to really target is um, the claim that that's only available in marriage. Right, right. So I guess that one of the things that is likely in the minds of many to support the thought that marriage is unique in some way um, and in some at least potentially morally transformative way is the, 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 the public nature of the vow taking, right? That it seems that one of the intrinsic features or one of the necessary features of marriage is that there's some public statement of the people to be married or the people who are being married, um, that they vow something to each other. Um, and um, there's a very, uh, I think, uh, rigorous and uh, precise uh, and impressive analysis in the second chapter of your book um, about whether divorce is a kind of promise breaking and what the status of marital vows uh, is. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to go into the 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 the, the gory details about uh, different kinds of commitment and taking up a commitment and having one. Uh, it's all very well done, but. Um, I, I found the overall uh, sort of discussion or the, the, the sort of general discussion of the question of whether divorce is promise-breaking because vows are promises uh, really, really intriguing. Um, and so c can you walk us through a little bit, again, without getting into too many of the details, about um, the question of whether um, wedding vows are, kind, are, are a kind of promise uh, and whether uh, the choice uh, to divorce is a, is a breaking of those promises? It seems that your view is that uh, wedding vows are not promises at all. Right. Um, so the analysis starts with an apparent inconsistent triad. So wedding vows involve promises. Um, it's the first part of the triad. But um, we tend to think that breaking promises is a serious moral wrong. But, you know, many people don't think that divorce, unilateral divorce, is a serious moral wrong, right? So I sketch a couple of cases to make that um, final intuition more appealing. You know, you can imagine cases where people just grow apart, one spouse tries and tries and cannot find, you know, happiness in this marriage and so decides to end it. Um, and many people who think that promise breaking is a serious moral wrong would not judge the, the decision after lots of effort at marriage counseling and so forth to end the marriage in that case is a serious moral wrong. So what's the disconnect here? Um, and the answer, you know, after a lot of discussion, the answer that I come up with is, as you say, that at least, you know, one central component of wedding vows um, cannot be the subject of promise, which is um, the um, so-called promise to love. Um, and so I argue that, you know, we can only promise what we can control and that love 
um, is an emotion is outside our control and not just, you know, the kind of early infatuation, um, love, but even the more, um, sort of subtle, companionate, marital, um, affection and love, um, is something that's outside of our control. Um, and, you know, empirically, um, we can just see um, you know, many people do grow apart. Um, your spouse can change. That's not something within your control. You can change in certain ways. And so the emotional content of the wedding vow, um, what we think of as a promise to, to love, I argue simply cannot be a promise at all. Now, having said that, um, there certainly are things that people can and do promise in marriage. So they do promise, I think, um, you know, to take on the legal contractual obligations. And so if someone defaults on those legal contractual obligations, obviously they're doing something obviously wrong and, you know, legally problematic as well. Um, and I think there's a very interesting question about um, how we promise to take on social roles in marriage. So I think, you know, if there's a clearly defined social role um, that is related to marriage, um, then, you know, with the promise to become someone's husband or wife, the person does take on um, the obligations that are associated with that social role. But having said that, in the modern um, liberal multicultural state, um, it's much less likely that there's a set of settled um, role obligations associated with the role. Um, and so when people make promises um, to, within marriage, very often what the content of the role is, is determined by uh, their intentions regarding it, um, or by a kind of very weak um, and general set of things that people understand um, spouses as, um, as um, being committed to, such as sexual exclusivity. But the, the kind of heart of the wedding vow, the promise to love, I don't think can be the subject of promise or obligation at all. Right. And so, um, again, one of the, um, the nice features of, of the analysis is not only this, uh, what seems to me to be a, uh, obviously manifestly correct point about how things that are out of your control, like that you will love somebody cannot be the subject of promising, but, um, you give this analysis according to which um, people who are taking wedding vows, especially you know when the the, the, the non voluntary uh, aspects are explicit, um, think that they're promising but are failing to do so. I think it's a case of a widespread philosophical mistake. Right, and I thought that 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 was dead on. Uh, that um, that it has to be a component of whatever the right theory of promising is. That there could be attempted performances of the act that, in fact, aren't bad performances or non-optimal performances, but fail uh, uh, fail at being and even you know, fail at being that kind of act in any sense. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what you're saying. That uh, at least these non-voluntary aspects. Um, of the content of wedding vows have to be the the people are thinking that they're promising and they are attempting to promise but they are failing uh, in some deep conceptual way because the content is not the kind of thing that can be promised. Um, but to move on, um, uh, in keeping with this this um, uh, aspect of marriage 
in that one of the central components on um, traditional understandings of marriage is that in marriage people promise or vow to love each other. One of the other targets of the book and one of the, I think, sort of central uh, uh, concerns running through the book um, is the, 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 your concern with the narrowness of um, standard understandings of marriage, not only in that on our standard understandings of these things, the marriage relation is always dyadic, involving only and at most two people, and is always um, at least uh, large parts of our country, always understood as um, a heterosexual relation uh, between one man and one woman, as uh, as the politicians say. Um, but your your target is something broader. In fact, it's uh, the love component that marriage has to be a relationship among people that's focused on love. Uh, and so, one of your um, uh, criticisms runs through the book is the presumption of what you call a modern normativity um, and that traditional marriage has a presumption of um, uh, that, that that love is at the center of the marital relation or a proper marital relation. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, what your objections are to uh, the Amato normative aspect of traditional understandings of marriage? Yes, um, but just to clarify one point, so um, the the kind of love um, that I'm arguing, you know, shouldn't be required as part of the legal marriage relation is um, romantic, sexual, dyadic love. So I do argue in the second part of the book that um, uh, marriage should involve a caring relationship. And so some people, you know, might want to relate the idea of care to the idea of love. So, so the kind of love that I'm really, um, you know, targeting, as it were, that sounds kind of bad, but the kind of love that um, I think is overvalued is romantic, dyadic, um, sexual love. And I argue that, you know, in our society, that is widely overvalued. Um, and it comes at the cost of undervaluing the kind of love or care or concern or affection that exists in friendship um, or that exists in, you know, extended family relations. So anatonormativity, and I'll just read the, the definition out of uh, chapter four of the book. Um, I call the disproportionate focus on marital and amorous love relationships as special sites of value and the assumption that romantic love is a universal goal amatonormativity. Amatonormativity consists in the assumptions that a central, exclusive, amorous relationship is normal for humans, in that it's a universally shared goal, and that such a relationship is normative, in that it should be aimed at in preference to other relationship types. So in chapter four, um, in the first part of the book, I'm really engaging in feminist social ethics, and I'm trying to make the case, um, you know, that our society is amatonormative. And I really, no one, um, many people have objected to me on this point, but no one has objected to me on the the basic empirical claim that our society is rapidly amatonormative. I mean, it's in the throes of the wedding industrial complex. There's propaganda, um, you know, everywhere you look. Um, including in um, the public schools, in abstinence until marriage education, and in the U.S. Social Security Act, which says um, that marriage is the appropriate context for sexual uh, activity. 
So everywhere you look, there's this emphasis on marital or marriage-like um, relationships as the kind of appropriate goal of a human life and as having um, a value that cannot be found in other kinds of relationships, such as friendships or such as care networks, um, so networks of several people which um, might be overlapping might not all be equally reciprocal in the way that dyadic relationships are, or polyamorous groups um, where people might have a triad um, in which three of them are equally involved, or again, they might, might have more of a network-type relationship where you know some people are involved um, and then there are overlapping relations with other people outside um, you know, the, the basic group. Um, so amatonormativity is, um, again, my term for this idea that you know, this one kind of relationship, um, which, it, you know, it, it needn't be a married relationship. It might be an unmarried, um, you know, cohabiting, dyadic, exclusive, sexual and romantic love relationship. Um, but that that kind of relationship has a value that can't be had in other kinds of relationships. And again, I think that this is really problematic from a feminist social ethics point of view for a number of reasons. I think that it... Um, undermines the value um, that, that's attributed to other relationships, such as friendships or networks. And I think it's part of um, what kind of propels people, particularly um, young women, into um, these dyadic um, marriage-type relationships. And I do think um, so this, this kind of picks up a line of feminist criticism you know, it, it goes back to at least John Stuart Mill, but um, to quote Simone de Beauvoir, um, marriage is the destiny traditionally offered to women. Um, and Simone de Beauvoir worried, um, you know, as many other feminists have, that if marriage is seen as young women's destiny, then that's going to downgrade um, their aspirations in other fields, particularly if they're taught um, that being a wife and mother is incompatible um, with, you know, real achievement in other areas, whether it's art or a career. Um, and so the worry is that the anatonormative pressure in our society has special costs um, for women. Um, and so, you know, one, one thing that I say in the book is, you know, men are um, encouraged by the wedding industrial complex and by anatonativity to give up a month's salary for a diamond engagement ring. Um, but women are pressured or encouraged to make much greater sacrifices, such as the sacrifice um, of an independent career, for example, in order to pursue, um, you know, this amato-normative uh, goal. And so that, that's why I think that they're really worried about these pressures in our society. And do you see um, the the critique of the amato-normativity um, as um, bolstered by um, the earlier point about the non-voluntariness of certain kinds of emotional reactions to others. So um, I don't know whether this came up in the book, but w mm. one of the things that the book got me thinking of is, well, if marriage is understood as this appropriate kind of relationship amongst people who uh, have this kind of or this instantiation of um, uh love between them, um, well, then it looks as if, you know, people who um, can't find anybody to love them <laughs> uh, uh, or who don't fall in love with anybody in this in this particular sense of, of the term um, are 
uh, have to be understood as sort of shut out of certain kinds of vital moral goods or even stronger than vital moral goods, vital human goods, right? Um, and then it's so it looks as if the Amato normative conception of marriage um, winds up condemning lots of maybe a whole maybe more than we, we think people to um, uh, lives that are somehow defective right. because they can't form these relations. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've read that 1% of Americans identify as asexual, right, is just not being interested in sexual relationships. Other people, for various reasons, at different parts of their lives, might be more interested in pursuing friendships than a kind of dyadic, central um, marriage relationship with the aspiration to permanence. And there's a real worry. And again, um, you know, there's a huge amount of stereotyping that goes on. So in, in the book, I quote a particular, some particularly choice examples of this. But, you know, the, the idea of the kind of, um, you know, spinster from whom, uh, from whose life, um, you know, joy is missing is, is a kind of, um, you know, permanent, um, stereotype or pervasive stereotype in our society, um, which is paired with the stereotype of, you know, the bachelor who's getting on in years and who just can't take care of his own life and is basically an overgrown child. Um, and so these stereotypes about unmarried people or, or at least people outside, um, you know, cohabiting romantic sexual relationships, um, suggest that they're not really fully adults or that they're missing um, some basic human good. And yeah, I do think that those stereotypes are very troubling. And there's some great work by the um, psychologist Bella DePaulo. She's written, I think, a number of books on this, but one is called Singled Out. And it really, you know, makes the case um, for, um, you know, the extent to which these stereotypes circulate in society. Um, and again, there's sort of the background um, to a lot of our thinking that, that actually doesn't get analyze or put under the microscope that often. Um, but I think they are there, and I think they can be damaging, and they might also influence people into making choices that really aren't the best for them. Well, that seems right, and one can only wonder uh, how many fewer Hollywood films there would be um, <laughs> if we gave up on the idea that uh, adult single people are fundamentally missing out on something that everybody must want. Um, right. Well, there could be better films. I mean, there could be more <laughs> diversity, and you know, let's let's maybe that's too much to ask for. But. <laughs> um, so, can I before we move on to the the the, the political? Um, uh, uh, content of the book, the second part of the book. Can I ask you just to say a little bit about um, how you understand uh, the kind of caring relation that you think is properly understood at the center of um, the the kind of relation that you want to understand as properly uh, marital? Yeah, there's um, a lot of, you know, excellent work in feminist ethics on care and the nature of care. Um, and, you know, my understanding of her really proceeds from that. And so one distinction I make is between material caregiving, which is caring for, you know, the basic material needs of another person um, and something which all of us need as children. And most of us will need it sometime in our adult life um, if we're sick, for instance. Um, and I distinguish between material caregiving and attitudinal care, which is the attitude of concern for a particular other. Um, it, it, it's a fairly vague definition. Um, you know, it's, it's something that's difficult to, to make incredibly precise. Um, but it's taking 
seeing another person good as one's own, um, knowing the other person in their particularity, and having a concern for their good. Um, and so that's the attitudinal caring, um, which I place at the center of um, my proposal for marriage law, minimal marriage. And there's actually um, a good reason why it's a little bit vague, at least politically, um, from the political point of view, um, which is that I don't think the state should be involved in distinguishing um, between the different types of relationships which people place at the center of their lives and which for them are based on care. So, you know, if one person says this is a caring relationship for me, um, you know, it, I think to a certain extent, um, it should be up to individual citizens to, you know, bring their own understanding of caring into relationships. Of course, there are some relationships we might say are just not, you know, compatible with caring, right? So, for example, um, uh, you know, a very impersonal um, business transaction or a, a kind of, um, you know, dominant submissive master-slave relationship, you, would, you know, would, would not meet that criterion of caring. So it does rule some things out. But that, that attitude of caring um, is what I put at the center of minimal marriage. And it's also um, what I argue in the book, um, I I argue that that attitudinal caring is morally valuable. It's morally um, motivational. It um, has an epistemic moral value. And that that caring attitude is, again, devalued by amateur normativity, which only values a particular type of care, but not all of these other forms of care that can exist in friendships and other relationships. And is care, in this sense, um, necessarily reciprocal? Uh well, it's not necessarily reciprocal because if you think about the mother-child relationship, the father-child relationship, um, there can be care um, that's unidirectional. Although in the parent-child relationship, we think about, um, you know, we expect that that care will be reciprocated. Um, but I do argue um, that within minimal marriage, that um, minimal marriage um, rights can't be transferred unilaterally. So there has to be an uptake. So there, there's a kind of, um, you know, cleavage here between the uh, moral analysis that I'm undertaking in part one of the book and the political analysis in part two of the book. Um, but, you know, the, the caring wouldn't necessarily be reciprocal. Right. Um, so let's let, let's then move on to talking about the uh, the the part you know the second part of the book where you um, outline um, in 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 considerable detail in some places uh, the, the the political proposal that you're interested in making of minimal marriage and maybe one way to to launch into this is um, uh, to ask you to um, give us a sort of a summary statement of. Um, some of the uh, uh, ways in which, at the legal and political level, marriage, traditionally understood, confers upon individuals rights and privileges and benefits, because um, it seems to me that that's uh, uh, really the, the sort of main plank of the political argument is that not only are these married, not only does marriage traditionally understood have all this. Uh, uh, 
moral gravity placed upon it that it really can't bear. But um, there are privileges, uh, um, very important ones that are granted to people in virtue of being somebody's spouse or in virtue of being married. Um, and it looks as if um, these privileges might be unjustified uh, if marriage is understood in the traditional way. Um, now, one of the figures that comes up uh, in the book a couple of times is that there are in the United States over a thousand distinct rights, privileges, and benefits that uh, right, accrue to somebody. Yeah, over 1,100 in federal law. Um, <laughs> and then there are additional ones in state law. And that doesn't include all of the um, employee benefits. So, for example, um, you know, entitlements that you get as an employee for, you know, health insurance for your spouse, or you're supposed to be on your pension plan, um, or, you know, employee-offered spousal hiring or relocation assistance. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of um, benefits privileges, rights that are offered through um, marriage. Um, some, some of the legal entitlements of marriage are available separately through private contracts, such as, um, you know, um, decision-making ability, medical decision-making ability when someone is incapacitated. You could exchange through private contracts. But a large number of these benefits, entitlements, privileges are not available through private contracts. Um, and so they're available exclusively to married people. And it's very interesting, if you look at the history of marriage in the United States, there's a kind of history of exclusion. I mean, I, I, you know, people today in the debate about same-sex marriage in this country talk about the tradition of marriage and, you know, how it's unchanging. And if you look at the history, um, and um, there's a book called Public Vows by Nancy Todd on this, which is just great. Um, you know, marriage has been based on a series of exclusions of different types of people from the benefits. So um, slaves um, before the Civil War were not entitled to marry. Um, you know, they might engage in um, kind of informal marriage ceremonies, but they didn't have the legal right to marry. So that was one of the things that um, after the Civil War, enslaved persons gained the right to marry. Um, but there, you know, with, under anti-miscegenation law, um, then marriage was uh, prohibited in many states between um, black persons and white persons, and in some states between Muslims and uh, people of Asian descent, like, or Chinese persons. Um, and so the history of marriage is a history of exclusion of certain types of people or certain types of relationships um, from these benefits. So now, um, today, um, in many jurisdictions and at the federal level in this country, same-sex relationships are excluded. Polygamous relationships are excluded. Um, and again, it's fascinating to look at uh, this. You know, in the in the 19th century, the real campaign against polygamy um, that went on when the Mormons um, began to when the Mormon religion um, began to grow, there was a really um, strong campaign against polygamy. I think six amendments to the Constitution banning polygamy were proposed. Um, and so really it's fundamental to our um, concept of citizenship, at least, you know, many social critics argue, um, the right to marry is fundamental to our concept of what it means to be a citizen. And being married has often been associated with being um, a full citizen. Um, so there's a very interesting history of exclusions there. And as well, so I said, um, you know, same-sex couples, polygamous or polyamorous, groups are excluded from the benefits. 
but so are um, non-sexual, non-romantic, um, committed, loving um, friends. So friends who want to structure their lives around each other, but you know, or have no interest in being engaged in a romantic and sexual relationship. They are also um, de facto excluded from the benefits of marriage. Right. And so um, maybe this is a, a, a way then uh, into asking you about the um, the political philosophical framework that is running in the background um, uh, of the argument for uh, minimi- minimizing marriage. Um, so the positive view uh, is driven by and largely presupposes um, a very familiar uh, to us now uh, framework for thinking about liberal politics um, that we get out of the later John Rawls, um, popularly known as political liberalism. Um, And so minimized marriage then um, uh, is not, um, although uh, libertarians like to use the word minimal for all kinds of things, this is not a a libertarian or disestablishment view. This is a, a Rawlsian sort of political, not contestably, comprehensively moral uh, uh, conception of marriage. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the Rawlsian background? Many of our listeners will, will, will know a lot of this already, but n- not all of them. Um, and then uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the contours of your positive uh, uh, conception of minimized marriage. Right, yeah. So to simplify greatly, um, you know, the idea of political liberalism is this thing shouldn't policy, at least in important matters of justice, well, sometimes those constitutional matters, on comprehensive moral or religious doctrines. Um, so comprehensive moral or religious doctrines would be those which apply to all areas of life. Um, so ideas of excellence, ideas of character or virtue, ideas of what an appropriate sexual relationship is. Um, you know, and fascinatingly, Rawls himself, in Theory of Justice, does have a paragraph where he actually talks about... Um, uh, you know, ideas of excellence apply to sexual relationships and makes the point that even though, um, you know, I think he says we, even though one may think that um, a certain kind of sexual relationship is shameful or, um, you know, not kind of morally worthy, um, and I, I think there he is thinking of same-sex relationships, um, you know, that's not a judgment that's acceptable within the political sphere, right? That's a judgment from a comprehensive moral or religious doctrine, and it should not be the basis, it should not be the reason for policy, at least in important matters of justice. Now, someone might say, and actually people have argued, well, marriage isn't, you know, a fundamental matter of justice that political liberalism doesn't apply to, but that's just false. Marriage is part of the basic structure of society. Um, it's an institution, you know, as, as we just discussed, that confers so many benefits and privileges that is, you know, profoundly structures our lives. Um, and Rawls, you know, himself said um, repeatedly, the family is part of the basic structure of society. Um, you know, Jeremy Garrett, in um, a recent paper on contractualizing marriage, um, cites and figures um, that marriage, um, administering marriage law, promoting marriage, incentivizing marriage actually costs the state billions of dollars. Right? Right. So it's not just that it's, um, you know, a fundamental, funder, sorry, a, 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 a part of the basic structure of society which distributes the benefits and burdens of the social cooperation. It's also something that's extremely costly to taxpayers. Um, and so, you know, it's not the kind of thing that should be based on a particular 
contested, comprehensive, moral or religious view. Um, and so, you know, my argument for minimal marriage is that most of the ways in which marriage is restricted or is exclusive are based on comprehensive moral and religious doctrine. So, for example, um, it doesn't seem possible to justify the restriction to male-female couples without invoking um, a comprehensive moral or religious doctrine, which is illegitimate in political liberalism, about you know the special value of um, male-female relationships as opposed to um, same-sex relationships. Right. So people will often invoke moral or religious views about you know the shamefulness or the wrongness of um, same-sex sexual activity, which are just illegitimate within political liberalism. And similarly, I argue, um, with the um, the restriction to monogamous couples, and um, other others have made this argument as well, um, you know, Andrew March, John Mahoney, so too, um, Martha Nussbaum, Shesha Calhoun, um, you know, the state shouldn't really have a role in deciding whether you know, a relationship between two people or a polyamorous or polygamous relationship of three or more um, deserves the recognition and entitlements that are accorded to marriage. Um, but it seems as if that is based on a comprehensive moral or religious doctrine, which gives um, a priority to monogamy that from the political point of view is illegitimate and arbitrary. Although I will say that some very powerful um, responses to that point have been made by um, political liberals, um, such as uh, Tom Brooks or um, Simon May, um, makes an argument against polygamy that would be acceptable within political liberalism based on um, citizenship and equality, right? And the worry that polygamy will really seriously undermine women's equality. So that's a political argument, um, a politically liberal argument that could be made against um, polygamy. But finally, I argue that the restriction to um, romantic and sexual um, uh, couples or partners is also uh, based on an illegitimate moral or religious doctrine, um, which holds that there, you know, which is basically amitriculativity, which holds that there's a special value in um, romantic sexual relationships that's not found in um, friendships. Right. So let me then. So, so the the minimized marriage conception then um, derives from uh, this requirement that Rawls helped us see of liberalism that um, at least when it comes to matters of basic justice and how the basic structure of society will be uh, designed, that um, uh, uh, those features of our uh, uh, framework for social cooperation are not. Um, too directly tied to or don't presume um, some comprehensive doctrine that can be reasonably uh, rejected. Um, and so the minimized marriage model then would allow for marriage relations or would allow for relations to be called marriage, which um, are not dyadic. They could be between you know more than two people, um, do not presuppose 
um, any kind of uh, uh, sexual exclusivity or anything that would go along uh, with the conception of love that is driving uh, a mononormativity um, and would involve more um, of a contractual relationship uh, where particular others are specified as having um, certain kinds of rights and privileges that are under traditional arrangements uh, ordinarily reserved um, only for uh, spouses in that traditional sense. Um, is, that, is that roughly correct? Right, that's roughly correct. So the idea is that the state can't restrict marriage by um, the sex of the parties, the number of the parties, or the type of the relationship. Okay, so let me now ask a, a sort of uh, um, um, a question that I'm sure uh, critics from various corners, and in fact critics maybe even from otherwise opposed corners might ask. So why... Why hold on to marriage as a civic institution at all? Why not argue, as some people do, both from feminist and other kinds of uh, directions uh, like libertarian directions? Why not just uh, argue or, or uh, uh, promote a, uh, a disestablishment view according to which marriage is just something that happens inside of churches uh, and um, is not uh, something that uh, the state gets involved in at all? Right. And, um, you know, I agree that that's an important question to me. That's really the main, um, you know, objection that the, the most pressing objection I think that needs to be faced from a political liberal point of view, which is why have marriage at all? Why not leave it to the churches and the Vegas wedding chapels? Why call this <laughs> marriage? Um, and so, you know, one thing, so... There, there are kind of two different parts to the answer. One has to do with the benefits, the privileges, and so forth that are exchanged within marriage. And, you know, Ron Ben Otter, in a review of um, Tamara Metz's, uh book, Untying the Knot, has a great line. He says, no one other than the most libertarian of libertarians really, um, you know, when they talk about disestablishing marriage, really means that they want to do away with all of the benefits and privileges and benefits that come with marriage. Um, although I, I think some of the disestablishment people actually do want to totally relegate marriage to private contracts. But if you think about what that would involve, right? I mean, what do we do with things like hospital and prison visiting rights, with bereavement and caretaking leave, with provision for jointly owned property, you know, such as the the marital domicile, what do we do with health care entitlements, um, pension entitlements, um, relocation expenses and spousal hiring where employers offer those, you know, or um, under the tax code, what gets counted as, you know, a part of your family for relocation expenses. So it's just sort of mind-boggling if you think about getting rid of all of those um, marital entitlements and benefits Oh, and actually, two of the key ones that I forgot to mention are special eligibility for immigration and residency um, within a state, which can be important, for example, for in-state tuition. So, you know, it doesn't seem as if it would, you know, be be desirable um, to actually get rid of all of those entitlements. So, there's an argument for retaining those entitlements, but uh, people um, might respond, well, but why call it marriage, right? Why not call it a civil union or domestic partnership? Um, but, you know, it's important to point out that as long as you have some institution, such as a domestic partnership, you don't really have a pure um, marriage privatizing or marriage contractualist position, um, because you are retaining some type of marriage-like legal category that distributes marriage-like benefits and entitlements. So it's a kind of intermediate position. 
Um, and so then, you know, the question, and, you know, people have made this point really forcefully, um, is, you know, why college? Isn't that just divisive, right? If we put same-sex marriage, you know, as we've seen in the U.S., right, it creates all of this division and hostility, and, um, you know, people are extremely offended. People, you know, with religious views of putting which marriage is only between men and women are extremely offended. Why not just um, get rid of marriage legally, call it a domestic partnership, and then you could uh, give it to, you know, whoever is eligible for it under the legal rationale without the kind of, um, you know, fuss and division and hostility that we see now. Okay, and my response to that, you know, and I, I do take the point, there might be certain informational or epistemic costs to calling all of these kind of diverse relationships marriage. Um, you know, that it would be confusing to people if, if someone's a friend or in a care network and they describe their, mar- their relationship as marital. So I, I think take the point, you know, there, there are some reasons not to call it marriage. Um, but my primary reason for calling it marriage is one of rectification of past injustice. Right. So just imagine, let's go back to um, the mid 20th century. And um, anti-miscegenation law, which prohibited marriages between blacks and whites. Now, in Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court struck that down as unconstitutional and said there's a right to marry, um, you know, and, and there's a right for blacks and whites to marry if they choose to. Now, imagine if instead of that decision, the Supreme Court had said in Loving versus Virginia, well, you know, we're just going to, we think the state should get out of the marriage business altogether. And we'll leave it to individuals, you know, if churches want to marry blacks and whites, good for them. If they don't, good for them. Um, if wedding chapels want to offer, you know, marriage between blacks and whites or not, you know, that's up to them. But the state is not going to recognize marriages anymore. I mean, that sends a very different message. Um, and so my reason for thinking same-sex marriage should legally be called same-sex marriage, um, is to really make the point that this is a relationship um, that, you know, equal, you know, from the political point of view, just as valuable um, as uh, male-female marriage um, and um, these other relationships, friendships, which have been devalued under amatonormativity, are just as valuable. So the reason for retaining the name marriage is symbolic. It's one of equality. And the worry is, you know, if the state just privatizes um, marriage entirely, it sends a very different message. However, having said that, you know, as I said before, there are these obviously informational and epistemic costs to just calling all of these diverse relationships marriage. Um, so, you know, the, the reason... Um, that I really actually want to consider calling all of these relationships marriage is just to get people thinking about the value of all of these diverse relationships and how the state has discriminated against them and how that could be rectified. Well, excellent. So um, we're, we're, we're running uh, uh, to the end of our time together. Um, but let me ask sort of uh, one further question and, 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 and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, so one of the, the, the things that you do at the end of the book, which uh, I really appreciate, I like when philosophers uh, uh, do this sort of thing, is um, you consider some of the more uh, obvious or the, the, some of the more um, pressing or uh, easy to see 
challenges that might uh, arise uh, in the minds of somebody who's not yet convinced uh, that uh, minimal marriage is the way to go. Um, and so you, 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 you sort of do an objections and replies kind of uh, routine um, uh, in the last chapter of the book. And um, particularly concerned with one of the uh, issues that, uh, um, you know, as I was reading, I was sort of thinking about, which is um, if there could be uh, marital relations between care networks and uh, uh, urban tribes and circles of friends, um, are there any outward limits on to how many people can be married? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there is a, a psychological limit on the number of caring relationships we can have, right? So, so the that I give from minimal marriage is to support caring relationships, which I argue are a primary good in um, Waldian liberalism. Right. And so I, I don't think, you know, if Hugh Huffner wanted to marry his, you know, 100 flightmates, can he really have caring relationships with that many people? I've read that there's an upper limit, um, I think 30 to 50. Ethan Waters, an urban tribe, cites this number. Um, mm -hmm. the number of kind of close relationships that we can have. I think there's some, you know, some kind of evolutionary theory about why, why that's the upper limit. And even that sounds like a lot, right? Um, but, you know, my, re my response to that is, well, okay, let's think about why it matters. One worry is the possibility of abuse. So if someone wants to marry 30 people and give them all special immigration eligibility, um, you know, I think the state does have an interest in investigating those relationships or even putting an upper limit and saying, you know, sorry, just for reasons of efficiency, we can only give this benefit to five spouses, not to 30 spouses, or to three spouses, or two spouses, or, you know, whatever the efficiency cap would be. But if you're talking about something like hospital and visiting, prison visiting rights, which, you know, in my view, are, should be disaggregated from the bundle, right, so, so the different rights can be transferred individually. Um, so if you're talking about hospital and prison visiting rights and someone wants to distribute those to five people or to 20 people, um, that doesn't really seem to me like there's a reason for the state um, to be concerned about that, so long as the people realize they have to take turns, right? So you can't have all 20 people visit you at once, and so you'll get less time with each person, etc. But so, so basically, you know, I, I do think, once again, the upper limit um, of the number of caring relationships is somewhat vague because it's determined, you know, individually, um, you know, by our individual psychological capacity. So in that way, it's sort of like the age of consent. But just as with, you know, the age of consent or the age of competence at which, you know, a minor is only deemed to be an adult and able to make their own decision, the state, you know, could um, set, set a limit that works in most cases, right? And then consider, in particular cases, which go over that limit, um, you know, exceptions, as we do right now with, you know, the age of competence for decision-making for minors. Well, um, excellent. Um, thank you. Um, and thank you for your time. Um, I usually end these interviews uh, by uh, asking uh, the authors um, what their next project is. Um, and given that this book has, has so recently come out, um, um, I don't know whether I should not ask you this, or uh, are you in between projects, or do you envision yourself working more on, on marriage? Can you tell us well, what's, what's coming of, up? Yeah, I kind of was hoping to move on from marriage, but I'm getting a lot of invitations. So right now I am doing some marriage-related um, work and preparing uh, some talks for 
uh, conference Barcelona.com the book. Um, but I really want to move on to um, a fairly new field, one in which not a lot has been written in philosophy that I'm thinking of as disaster ethics. You know, so we are having, um, it, again, it's a really kind of pressing and timely topic. Um, you know, there are, it, it seems as if the number of disasters is increasing. So, you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, the flooding that occurred after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and so I think there's a set of distinctive ethical and political issues that arise with um, disaster preparedness, disaster response, and rebuilding after a disaster. So I'm really, I'm kind of excited to move on to a new topic because um, I've been working on marriage for quite a few years now. Well, that sounds uh, very exciting. Uh, I'll keep an eye out for, uh, for, for work from you on that. And you're right. Um, one can only uh, expect uh, more disasters, particularly probably of environmental sorts, uh, to befall us, um, unfortunately, as that may be, or as depressing a thought as that might be. Um, but uh, I want to thank you uh, for talking to us today about your book, Minimizing Marriage. Um, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Bob. Bye-bye now. Goodbye. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Elizabeth Brake of Arizona State University. We were talking about her new book, Minimizing Marriage, published this year by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.